You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by David Oakley, who's an Army officer and former CIA officer who currently serves as an assistant professor at the National Defense University's College of International Security Affairs. He's also the author of Subordinating Intelligence, the DOD-CIA Post-Cold War Relationship. So welcome, David. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Hey, Vince. Thanks for having me. So you're really uniquely suited to write a book on this subject since you now currently serve as a military officer and you're a former CIA officer. But what got you to this topic? Why is it such a, a fertile ground for kind of taking it on and analyzing it in the way that you did? And yeah, so you mentioned my background as a former CIA officer and then a current military officer. And uh, through that experience, I was always curious because you look at the OSS, you look at the common lineage, the shared lineage. Um, but anyone who's worked in either organization will realize they're culturally much much different. And so just, you know, my experience there um, got me kind of interested in the topic. Um, I was attending a school called the School of Advanced Military Studies, the Army School, and we had to do some research uh, on an operational topic. And so I started to, you know, look, I looked for a way I could bring my interest in both and also my curiosity about how two organizations, same lineage, uh, but completely different. And so I started researching it then, um, found a lot of fertile ground, found that there wasn't a lot to do about the relationship or how the relationship evolved over time and decided to continue with it for my uh, uh, for the research. One thing that's interesting, and we'll go to the bottom line up front right here, right? The core question of this book is like, what is the purpose of intelligence, right? Is yeah. it designed to support policymakers, right? The big picture of the president and the national security council and like the big strategic issues or military commanders. I mean, that, that seems to be the question that has gone back and forth, at least for the last 25 years or so. So, you know, it's interesting when I, when I started to do this research, I went to an intelligence national security Alliance conference and I was sitting in the back of the room and, you know, of course I have a definition of intelligence. That's 
largely informed my, by my experience with the CIA as a human officer. Um, and so I was sitting in the back of the room, and what, what came across to me as I went to these different speakers is we might have an intelligence community, but all these individuals defined intelligence slightly different. So like, for example, you know, being a human officer, uh, officer, um, you know, we always talked about, you know, clandestinely acquired was one of the key attributes of the intelligence. Um, but you talk to some other folks and, you know, they focus more on um, open source collection. And of course, analysts are different than collectors. And so what I found, and, and, and so w- when I heard that initially, that kind of informed me the way I approached some of my interviews with, with these with these individuals, these former leaders in the intelligence community, whether it's from the CIA or the military. Um, and what I found was interesting is some individuals really focused on the support to the warfighter. And so I remember one conversation I had that's uh, uh, laid out in the book uh, when an individual, former senior uh, intelligence officer, said to me that intelligence is best when it identifies the person behind the door. And so it was very tactically oriented. But then I had other individuals who were senior that focused, hey, that told me, hey, we focus too much on tactical intelligence and that affects the quality of information that goes to the policymaker. Well, it's interesting. Anyone younger than 25 right now may not remember when the CIA was essentially an independent organization that kind of did 30 year estimates on Chinese economy and, you know, looked at leadership analysis. And, but you really make the point in the book, and we'll get into this and we'll take it apart, that support the military commanders, the kind of the military mission of the CIA makes it less independent. And as you would kind of the title suggest, potentially subordinate to the DOD, not what it was intended to be when it was created in 1947. No, I, and, I, and I believe that, you know, and, and, and part of this is probably in my view is, you know, immediately shaped by my experience as as a military officer. So while I never been in military intelligence, I have served on staffs. And, you know, largely when you when you serve on a staff, you're serving the general officer, the commander, and you're providing him information enabled to decision making. Um, and, you know, that is quite tactical operational in nature. It's much different than the type of information that you would you you would provide a policymaker to provide that understanding. Um, you know, largely it's driven by tactical actions and operation. Um, and it's it's much more catered and centered around that individual, that commander. A lot of people focus on the post 9-11 world as kind of the impetus for the current relationship to DOD and CIA, right? 9-11 kind of militarized the CIA. But you argue in the book that it starts way earlier than that. And we're going to get to that. I want to take that apart. But let's at least get our listeners up to date with what is the current relationship between the DOD and the CIA? Because it's very different. If you if you were a CIA officer who retired in the early 1990s, the CIA today would look very, very different to you. I'm talking hundreds of military personnel working at CIA when there was just a handful earlier on. But there are there some key differences too. You want to talk a little bit about some of those? Yeah, I, I think, you know, and then this is some of the goodness I talk about in the book. And that's one of the, you know, the main arguments I try to put, of course, uh, um, across in the book is there's positives from this relationship and there's negatives. I think one of the positive has been this increased familiarity between the CIA and DOD. I mean, you look at stuff like, uh, you know, a recent class at the farm, 25% was military officers going through. And so I think that's very important, especially with all, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, these, these, um, these operations, there's much more familiarity and understanding. Um, one of the, one of the, uh, um, I, I interviewed some folks that had been liaisons to the, the CIA in the, in the military in the, in the early nineties. And they would describe, you know, a, a 
you know, maybe a handful of military officers. Uh, today, you, you go to the CIA, uh, you, you know, talk to the um, uh, uh, Associate Director of Military Affairs. There's a lot more interaction mm-hmm. between the two. Uh, and so th- that's really, really good. Um, but it's, you know, it's much, much different than it was before 9-11. Right. The, the seed for this relationship, uh, as you argue in the book, was planted all the way back in the 1980s. In the early 80s, really kind of look at 83 in Beirut and Grenada, which, you know, a lot of people, heck, you know, there's one movie about it with Clint Eastwood, Heartbreak Ridge. But other than that, Grenada was kind of just forgotten. But for a lot of people in the intelligence community, in the military, it wasn't because of the real problem with commanders on the ground feeling as though they had really bad intelligence about the dispersion of forces, particularly bad human intelligence. Yeah. So, you know, Beirut was was particularly interesting, especially when I went back through some of the congressional um, committees that, that looked at the mistakes leading up to Beirut. And, and one of the things they blamed was a lack of human intelligence. And it was a lack of human intelligence for force protection, um, which I found interesting because if you, you know, and this goes back to 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 assets and um, you know, what, what kind of, um, sources that would be required for, for someone providing information on, on issues relevant to policymakers versus issues re- relevant to commanders on the ground. Um, uh, but Congress was, was very critical of, of the CIA, um, and their lack of support to the warfighter on the ground to provide force protection information. Um, and so that really, that and then grenade around the same time, this lack of, you know, uh, knowledge, uh, battlefield awareness. Um, they were also critical of, uh, of human intelligence, CIA particularly. And I just found that fascinating because it, it, to me, it seemed like a disconnect um, in the Congress's appreciation of what the CIA was originally built for and their role in, you know, supporting the military uh, versus their role as supporting the policymaker. Well, that's the tricky part because the CIA had just been essentially cleaned, you know, and, and decimated from one end to the other with Stanfield Turner as CIA director. And they're in a position where if you're going to force them to do a new mission, essentially, you know, provide on the ground tactical intelligence for military commanders without increasing the size of the workforce that's doing human intelligence, it's zero sum. You've got to pull from other places and pulling from other places meant pulling from the traditional collectors who are doing strategic intelligence. Yeah. And I think it's particularly important when you, when you look at Beirut and uh, cause Beirut, their, their station was decimated with like six months before in, in another bombing right. attack. And so they didn't even have the network or the conditions on the ground and they had lost a lot of their assets um, after that attack. So no, it, it's, it is, um, it is concerning. Um, and especially, you know, this, this, I think some of it, it might be an ignorance um, by policymakers on what it actually takes to develop intelligence, to develop assets who have access to certain sources. Around the same time, you saw kind of the beginning of this militarization with the creation of Special Operations Command, SOCOM, which gave the CIA a really point person inside the DOD kind of starting this relationship. But also following Beirut, CIA started to focus more on counterterrorism, which by definition, tends to be much more tactical than big picture strategic. And then that kind of already is leading them down the rabbit hole. No, no, I agree. And th- this is where, you know, I, I, 
I walked away from my research and, you know, it was, I, I got an appreciation for acknowledging that the CIA has to have a role and they, they, they need a role in counterterrorism, but also appreciating that too much role, too, too much focus takes them naturally down a, a tactical kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. And, you know, looking back, although this book doesn't really cover it, you know, I think this relationship between, um, you know, especially if you look at the CIA's paramilitary forces and you look at their, their broader mission about supporting the policymaker uh, to develop uh, policy um, or informing policy, this is a tension within the organization that has existed since its founding. Right. Yeah. The Gulf War in 91 was really a turning point for kind of this, yeah. this relationship, mainly because of all the kind of the spotlight of attention that was put on the relationship between the CIA and the ability to support war fighters and a lot of it was General Norman Schwarzkopf kind of openly criticizing the kind of intelligence that they got. Um, and then, you know, SSCI jumps in and was particularly harsh about that relationship, um, even to the point where they said that CIA needs to support military commanders in peacetime more yeah. than they were. I mean, how how do you maintain an independent strategic intelligence organization when even during peacetime, you're being asked to support the military commander. You know, it's very difficult. And, you know, especially you look to today, I think it's even more difficult than it was in the 90s when a lot of that rhetoric started. So back then, you know, when they started saying during times of conflict to support the warfighter, when we weren't talking about uh, perpetual conflict, Uh, we, when we were talking about, okay, here's the CIA that needs to ramp themselves up to support the warfighter, that was a little more palatable. Although I would argue there were some issues with with right. that, uh, but now you look at this perpetual war. You look, you look, you know, when we we define the entire globe as kind of a um, you know a, 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 a conflict zone, a battle area after nine eleven, um, it becomes very difficult um, and nearly impossible. Um, and then going back to the nineties when they started to get this this requirement or uh, leverage on them, uh, they were undergoing significant budget cuts. Right. I mean, that's the trick is you might you talk about perpetual war, but the 90s was kind of a perpetual military operation decade, you know, Gulf War. But then you have Somalia and talk about intelligence failure in Somalia. We find out much later on that bin Laden and crew were basically there operating that whole thing in the Mogadishu and then the Balkans. Um, it, it seems to me that, yes, you have this every from Daniel Patrick Moynihan and everybody else kind of trying to cut back the CIA or eliminate it completely. But then you have Bill Clinton, who really codifies this relationship of the CIA being subordinate to the military with presidential decision directive 35, um, where they really lay out explicitly that the top intelligence community priority was support military operations. No, it was. And, you know, I looked at PDD 35 is really uh, one of the most important because it was articulated by a policymaker that this will be your, 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 your main objective. And, you know, I think, you know, you go, you look back um, to also, um, it, it empowered the combatant commanders a little, a little more also. And so there was this expectation um, that there wasn't just this support during um, conflicts, but it was also support these combatant commanders in developing um, plans that would be implemented during during conflicts. And so, no, I think the, the PDD-35, why I understand why it occurred at that time, um, I think was a pretty, a pretty significant uh, a push towards what, what I refer to as a subordination of CIA to the DOD. Well, it'd be one thing if this was happening during an increase in funding and resources and personnel for the CIA, but because they're being 
I mean, this is the piece of dividend, right? The, the military gets slashed, but so does the intelligence. Maybe arguably the intelligence agencies get slashed even more than the DOD. At the same time, you're asking them to kind of step up on a, a mission that focuses on supporting military commanders. It, it almost guarantees that you overemphasize the tactical versus strategic. You don't have a choice, right? Yeah. And it seems. You know. No, no, I, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, and, and, and if you look at the time, it's a really rough time because you're having them support these operations in Bosnia and Somalia and Kosovo at a time when, you know, these the, the, the intelligence community was really trying to wrestle with its identity in the post-Cold War world. And not only were they wrestling with their identity, the United States was trying to wrestle with its role right. and, and its responsibility in, in the post-9-11 world. Um, and so I think it was, you know, it wasn't only a, a – a, 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 it was, I hate to say bad time, but it was an unfortunate time for us to take the intelligence community and the CIA particularly and focus them more on supporting the warfighter. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Well, I mean, Serbia really, you talk about war in Kosovo, that, that really highlights this because... The CIA not only was not providing big picture strategic information as well as it probably could, but it came directly involved in straight up targeting decisions, mm-hmm. which we, you know, we look at that today. Again, anyone younger than 25 would be like, yeah, that's what the CIA does. It picks out people to kill with drones. Mm-hmm. But this was really the first time the CIA is determining particular targeting decisions, and they're not very good at it. No, no. And I talk a little bit about in the book and I, you know, I use the Chinese embassy as one of the examples. Um, but yeah, we, we, we put them in the process of identifying targets um, and really, you know, supporting the, the combatant commander and the, the forces on the ground to doing a, a much more tactical type of operation. Right. And yeah, you know, you're taking individuals that are talented individuals, but giving them a mission that they just haven't prepared for, and they don't even have the, the processes in place to, to support it. Um, but what I found in, you know, what I found throughout the book is there are many, there's many cases um, throughout the relationship of the CIA DOD um, from the early 80s till now to where, you know, the intelligence community received tasks. And although it doesn't fit them um, being, you know, good government officials and team players, uh, they'll do their best to do their best to, right. to support the mission. I mean, we also see the Balkans as the beginning of operational use of drones. And while there haven't been armed quite yet, um, that comes soon thereafter. Um, You really can see how that is kind of the the embryonic beginnings of what we see today. I mean, there are CIA personnel that are literally targeters. Like, that's their job today. That didn't exist before this time period. That's a new job. Um, Chris Costa, our executive director, was very involved in the Panama operation. Um, was it just cause? No. Yeah. Um, can't believe I had to slip my mind. <laughs> Why the title, the titles are so wonderful. Um, and he was talking about the idea of manhunting and how that hadn't been something that was done 
by intelligence before 89 in Panama. And so you can kind of see like these things that we're very good at now or that we do a lot of now were just not things the CIA did prior to this 9-11 period or did well. Yeah, and I agree. You know, there's always been an aspect, I think, of targeting at the CIA, but it was a different type of targeting. So it was, you know, targeting individuals who have access to certain information right. for recruitment. But you're, you're right. There's, there wasn't this kind of concept of the, of the targeting cycle, like the military talks about the targeting in cycle. Um, and, you know, that's really, it, it came out, you know, significantly after 9-11, but, you know, it was even earlier with the use of drones and stuff. Um, and I think, you know, you hit on something with the use of drones. One, one of my conversations that I had a very fascinating interview was with uh, um, retired Admiral Bobby Ray Inman. And he had been on the, uh, uh, he was on Obama's Presidential Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board at the time. And he, he, you know, he was telling me a story about how he was doing um, a tour, basically, of, um uh, some of the intelligence community, and he, 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 when they when they took him to talk to him about some of the issues in the intelligence community, they decided to show him a, a drone strike. And he kind of, you know, he walked away from there kind of wondering, hey, why have we taken our national intelligence capability and focused them on a tactical issue, on a drone strike? And his perspective, I thought, was was very fascinating, and I think it, it, it highlights a, a larger issue that kind of drives this. Um, his perspective was, you know, a lot of this is driven by the policymaker. We we have policymakers who are infatuated with kind of tactical operations, right. with 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 James Bond type of stuff, um, and that's the kind of things they want. And so these organizations, what they naturally do is they, you know, there's an element of you want to support the these policymakers, um, and when the policymaker is focusing on drone strikes and you utilize that, utilize that, utilizing that to, you know, um, decide, I guess, to quantify success, um, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that some of our national intelligence organizations are focused on that also. Well, I mean, instant gratification for a lot of the policymakers. They're thinking, you know, what can I do within my four or eight year presidency? So they're less worried or thinking about the 30 year economic outlook about China. Yeah. You know, China 2050 doesn't mean a lot to someone who's not going to be president in a couple mm-hmm. of years. Um, and, you know, the idea of turning the CIA into a push button, gee whiz, let's see the bad guy blow up. And that makes me happy. Again, regardless of political affiliation, that can be something that you can show your voters or you can show your, you know, your supporters. And that just uh, the politics, you know, politicization of the intelligence just has so many different parameters to that. Right. Yeah. This is one that you're not talking about Republican or Democrat here. You're talking about the idea of. Someone needs something to help them stay in power. And here's a way to do that. I mean, I would think back to the gee whizness of the Desert Storm stuff where, you know, General Horner and others are showing the pictures of the videotape of the bombs going off and taking out the U.S., uh, the Iraqi Air Force headquarters and stuff. That was justifying all the money. Yeah. Right. So that was just me going off in a direction I didn't need to. So let's talk about post 9-11. Um, this, this book is, is very apolitical. Um, it's one that, you know, just kind of walks the the operational, tactical, strategic, you know, academic line. But there is a quasi villain in the post 9-11 world, and that's uh, former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Um, you've identified him as a major reason for kind of the increased subordination, the attempted increased subordination of the CIA to the DOD. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, things like he was annoyed that the CIA had boots on the ground before anybody else did in Afghanistan and kind of almost this personal kind of 
vendetta against CIA and wanting to make DOD not only independent, but in charge. Yeah. Now, I, I think it's interesting. I think a lot of that, you know, I think there is some personality involved. And, and I think when, when you see him leave that position and, and, and um, you know, he's replaced by a much more parochial uh, individual um, in, in, in uh, Bob Gates, um, I think you see a lot of the relationship in, improve. But, you know, and, and I think part of this, part of what he drove, he being Rumsfeld drove, um, you know, around this time, we, we started doing the, we, we gave SOCOM the mission, right? United States gave SOCOM the mission for the counterterrorism fight throughout the globe. Um, basically, in, in what I argue in the book is, um, you know, making the whole globe a battlefield. And so Rumsfeld could argue, you know, I'm not doing intelligence collection. I do not need to coordinate with the CIA um, in those countries. I'm doing intelligence preparation of the battlefield. Right. And that's a, that's a magical phrase. Yeah. Where I mean, you see so many of them in the global war on terror corner. That even that itself is a nice little mm-hmm. phrase, but there's so many things that kind of allow for unheard of or unthought of ways of doing business, uh, where you redefine things as certain. And this is one of these amazing things, where if, if the whole world is a potential battlefield, mm-hmm. then there's no such thing as doing standard human intelligence collection mm-hmm. anymore because everything has potential to be a, a battlefield. At some point. No, yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're correct. And, you know, it, it, it also expands. And I think, and that was initially one of the things that really, uh, under Rumsfeld, I think, ruffled feathers at the, at the CIA. And, and I would say, rightly so. Um, you know, he looked at it as, and I think part of it was um, he wanted, he, he, he was a little offended that, you know, the, the, the CIA could get into Afghanistan faster. Um, he was not happy um, with some of the roles the CIA was taking taken upon, and so he wanted to his organization to take a lead. And so he looked at it as, "Hey, I'm I'm going to you know define this not as foreign intelligence collection, but as intelligence preparation in the battlefield." And you know, from the CIA's perspective, you know um, that disrupts the 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 uh, foreign intelligence collections you're talking about i mean it's it's you know it 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 and then also i think it sends a a message to to allies um you know and this is kind of another point but you know when you when you call the whole world a battlefield and you're doing um intelligence preparation in the battlefield i think it also conveys a message that uh, i'm not certain we want well i mean you 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 alluded to the fact that it, it might disrupt foreign intelligence collection i mean that's that's the nightmare scenario for CIA is that they've been working years to develop assets and resources and places that may not be about, it's not, you know, we're not talking about Afghanistan. We may be talking about the Philippines or we may be talking about, you know, Pakistan or sub-Saharan Africa and places that we've had case officers, just, you know, trying to create sources and everything else. And then all of a sudden DIA or, or the DOD comes stomping in there with their own preparation of the battle space and could burn everything that CIA has been trying to do for decades at that point. Yeah. And you, you also offend our, our allies and our, our partners in some of those areas that we have liaison relationships with. Um, and you know, when, when you have Rumsfeld wanting to do intelligence preparation, in the battlefield and not making, uh, the CIA station chief aware of what's going on or the intelligence community aware of what they're doing. Um, you know, our allies, who we have liaison partners can find out and that, you know, um, uh, tarnishes our broader U S relationship with those allies. You were very euphemistic and, and very, uh, 
ambassadorial when you said tarnishes our relationship. It can <laughs> can make us look like freaking idiots. And I really mean euphemistic in saying that <laughs> if one hand the dia and the cia don't know what each other are doing um another real issue for rumsfeld was the establishment of the dni uh and this is something that you know it hasn't been around long enough for us to fully judge it i mean i'm, I'm a historian it's going to be around a lot longer for me to give it kind of a up or down um but he did not like the dni very much he fought against it in the beginning and then when he saw that it was going to happen regardless he looked to try to weaken its ability to be a clearinghouse for intelligence. No, and you know it's it's interesting. He even got um, he even butted heads with some of his underlings, and so right, very famously named underlings. Yes, yes, yeah. future future yes. and I. Yeah, um, yeah, he, he didn't like it, and you know I wonder, and I, and I, you know, around the same time he established Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, um, and you know. Although this was a position, I think that he was pushing for even back during the Carter administration. He was looking for how you know how do I unify intelligence with that within DoD? And so, as a leader of DoD, I can appreciate why he'd want to do that, want to have that single belly button he could hit. Um, but you know, I, I wonder if there was also a part of this not liking the DNI um, into you know what motivated his viewpoint of of having an undersecretary of defense. Well, the USD for intelligence though was under his basically was not part of the IC. It was kind of specifically just focused on the defense side of things. And you had mentioned the idea that when Jim Clapper, who was the NGA director, and Mike Hayden, who was the NSA director, two intelligence agencies that are considered kind of independently part of the IC, but are under the DOD auspices, yeah. their Department of Defense agencies argued that they should be part of the DNI more broadly and not under the DOD. Rumsfeld wanted nothing to do with it. No, he, he, he basically scolded them for, you know, you know, you, you know, basically you work for me. Right. You know, your main job and your main hat, you might have a national intelligence mission, but your most important role is supporting DOD. And, you know, more importantly, you work for me. Well, that's amazing to think of. You think about the NSA and kind of its global strategic view versus kind of tactical stuff. I mean, that's, I'm wondering if there's a historian out there that someday is going to do kind of research into that relationship and see the direction the NSA took with some of the metadata collection and stuff that was focused much more on tactical, stopping a terrorist attack coming tomorrow, which, look, it's understandable. But in taking away from SIGINT that was more focused on what Russia was doing or what China was doing and other things because of Rumsfeld and the direction that he made the NSA go in under Mike yeah. Hayden. Now, I think that would be, I think that would be a very in interesting project to do, you know, and during a lot of my interviews, when it, when it goes to signals and stuff, um, a lot of people point out, Hey, you know, signals is a little less difficult, a little less concerning when you talk about, you know, a militarization, I guess, or a, a subordination to DOD, DOD from the collection, collection standpoint, because, you know, they can, we can scoop up all the signals. Right. Um, but from an analytical right. standpoint, you know, I, I, and, and I'm, you know, largely ignorant of, you know, and I think it'd be a good research. And what, what did, during that time period, what did the analysts focus on? Were the analysts focused on supporting the warfighter or were the analysts uh, focused on supporting the policymaker? Right. Yeah. We'd already mentioned about per personalities mattering, and you've, you've talked a little bit about how kind of Rumsfeld rub people, rub people the wrong way. I say that five times fast. Um, after he left, there were really this kind of group of men who made the the relationship that much better. We've already talked about Clapper and Hayden. Uh, you talked about Bob Gates already, uh, but Michael McConnell is a name that hasn't come up yet. People don't necessarily think of him. If if I think back about the DNIs, he's not the one that's on the top of my list. He's kind of forgotten. 
But his inclusion in this relationship with Clapper, Hayden, and Gates really is what transformed or at least cleaned up some of the mess after Rumsfeld left the Pentagon. Yeah, McConnell is a fascinating character, and I was fortunate enough to be able to interview him. But I think a lot of people forget he was the J-2 during Desert Storm. And so um, and if you look back to his time as J-2, he really did some remarkable stuff in supporting the combined command of Schwarzkopf. Um, you know, the creation of the Joint Intelligence Center within Combatant Commands, reaching out to, to NSA, um, reaching out to CIA, really getting the national intelligence community to support the warfighter. Um, and then I, I agree with you when you, you know, you look to see when he becomes DNI, I think he brought that knowledge with him and he understood, I think both the importance of having a partnership between national intelligence and the warfighter, um, but also the importance that they had or that they had distinct missions to that we couldn't forget. Right. Um, yeah. So I think he was also all those individuals, be it Gates, um, uh, McConnell, Hayden, Clapper, um, you know, I, I think them being the positions they were after Rumsfeld left was very valuable to improving the relationship. Um, I think even those at the bottom up too, I think field commanders like Petraeus and Crystal and others who, um, I mean, maybe that's a double-edged sword argument here too, because you have these generals that become CIA directors and stuff. Maybe there is too much, you know, incestuous relationship there between the two, but certainly that helped the relationship build and grow when you don't have this butting heads, between CIA and DOD. No, I, I think it did. Um, you know, and I and I think on the grassroots level, the relationship has been very, very good. Um, I think typically where the relationship has been a little more, uh, I guess, rocky is at the higher levels. But I do think this, you know, this, you know, whether it's portray. Uh, Petraeus um, and his experience working with the CIA and appreciation of it. And I think that uh, has been valuable for the relationship. Well, another thing that happened is the Undersecretary of Defense kind of became more of an integral member of the intelligence community and not just the DOD. That, yeah. that, that seems to have mattered a little bit in the last decade or so. Yeah. Um, and, and then you... With the USDI, you mean with the Undersecretary of Defense for yeah. Intelligence? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think if you if you look, and I apologize, as the name escapes me right now, um, uh, but the USDI, um, uh, people can look it up. Never yeah. memorize anything. You can look <laughs> up. You're good. But uh, no, I, I agree. In the USDI, and, and I think it, it depends on the, the role they decided to take too. So initially, you look at someone like Cambone who was Ronald Rumsfeld's folks. And I'm not, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I think a little less critical of Cambone, um, but he was very parochial in his relationship and he was really focused on the department. Later USDIs, uh, later USDIs, I think, were uh, less parochial. And I think it really, it helped the relationship um, uh, kind of recover from the Rumsfeld years. So let's, let's go back to the bottom line because why is it an issue as your book title suggests, why would it be an issue if CIA was subordinate to the Pentagon? Um, kind of big picture. So I, th- I think it goes back to, you know, it goes back to 1947 and the, the purpose of the, the CIA. And you look back then with way, you know, whether it was a Dulles Cray uh, uh, commission or others who said we really need an independent intelligence organization um, to really provide uh, unbiased analysis uh, uh, to the um, policymakers. Um, as soon as we subordinate it to another organization, we lose that unbiased analysis. Um, and I think we really lose having an in, um, that 
an independent intelligence organization. Uh, it becomes independent intelligence organization name only. Um, and so whenever we say, hey, your main function is to support the warfighter, your main function is to ensure that they have the intelligence for planning, um, we push it a little more towards, a little less um, or away from independence. Well, and you, you also run the risk of, of really dropping the ball on big picture strategic mm-hmm. intelligence. I mean, that's that's where more than anything else um, the CIA was designed to do, right? The CIA in 47 wasn't just designed to be independent. It was designed to pick up on future threats on the big picture, whether it's the Soviet nuclear threat or the Chinese threat or anything else. And if you're focused on al-Qaeda all the time and focused on tactical intelligence, you might miss those big threats coming down the pipe. Yeah, and you know, not, and I would say not just the big kind of threat, uh, the strategic warning, but I think also the appreciation of it's bubbling underneath. Yeah. And so, you know, um, you, 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 this understanding the world that policymakers need to have, this understanding of kind of the flows of where it's going, um, when you get focused on, you know, kind of the supporting the warfighter, you lose sight of that. And I think it's tied back to that conversation we had earlier about the drone strikes and looking, you know, just at, um, you know, how successful are we are just taking out targets and not, okay, what's this broader appreciation I have of the world? Isn't there even a big picture argument here than even just the CIA of the, the kind of broader DOD supremacy over U.S. foreign policy writ large? Yeah. I mean, the idea, everything's been militarized, almost a solve all, right? And, you know, it's mixed into popular culture and popular understanding of kind of the there are very few parades and wounded warrior project for CIA personnel or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's all kind of this. And look, we're both your current military. I'm ex-military. We obviously have appreciation for mm-hmm. uh, the soldiers and sailors, airmen and, and Marines out there. But there has been a lazy foreign policy in the last 20 years of sending the Marines or sending the SEALs or sending someone instead of sending USAID or send in the Peace Corps, or send in some diplomats, yeah. or, you know, agency personnel. It's kind of the, you know, it used to be an emergency break glass and send in the Marines. Now, that's like the first 10 options, and then yeah. it's, maybe we'll do some diplomacy later on. No, I think it is. And that's, you know, it's interesting. It, my original title was Militarizing Intelligence. Um, but it was, you know, I... I Spoke to some friends about it, and um, and they had some some good comments that it could be mistaken that you know maybe the CIA shouldn't be involved in paramilitary, and that wasn't what I was trying to get at. Um, although I realized the tension in in being involved in paramilitary, that's a it's a it's a mission the CIA has had for some time. Uh, but I do agree with you that I think, and I argue in the book that this is a symptom of the broader what I call militarization of foreign policy, or not what I call militarization of foreign policy, what others have called militarization of foreign policy. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, you know, there's this there's this huge trust, I don't know if you call it trust or huge focus placed on DOD um, and, you know, and, and a lot of influence given to combatant commanders. Um, and one of the things, you know, we in the military, um, you know, we talk about shaping. And so there's this role, not just during um, combat operations or during times of war, but there's this shaping our influence throughout the globe. And I think over time, this uh, role of the combatant commanders shaping the environment has given them kind of a dominant position in in in, in uh, foreign affairs, um, and I to me when I, I end with this in the book, it's 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 disconcerting. Right. And so as you say, we want to, we want to support the troops. Um, 
we want to find balance. And what's interesting is, and this isn't, you know, um, a, a few people who initially commented on the book say, hey, you know, Dave, you, you might come across as anti-DOD. Right. Um, which is, if they know where I, you know, where I get my paycheck, they realize that that's, you know, kind of, kind of funny. Uh, and of course, this is my own personal opinion and right. not, not the, the DOD's opinion. Um, but I, I don't think I'm alone when you look at military professionals who have um, voiced concern right. over this militarization of foreign policy. Well, people will accuse me of that anyway, so I'll just jump right in and say, <laughs> I mean, there's a, a little bit of a tail wagging the dog here, too. When you have an $800 billion defense budget, you need to find a place to drop your yeah. bombs. You know, and, and when you're, you know, when one, less than 1% of the budget is foreign aid and other things like that, too. But uh, Jim Mattis was interesting when he talked about, when it, during his confirmation hearings, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially is like, if you don't, give more money to the State Department diplomats, then you better buy me a lot more bullets, mm -hmm. right? The idea is there are people who I think are thinking in the same way you are, where there has been a militarization of foreign policy, and it's not just the Trump administration. It goes back mm -hmm. way before that, where the solution to the problem is sending the Green Berets or sending the SEALs instead of a more foggy bottom based thing versus a Pentagon based thing. No, I think you're right. I think part of it is maybe it's just human nature. We're biased towards action. Yeah. And so we think that by action itself, we're achieving something. Um, and so we push, you know, send the military and, you know, the, the action itself, uh, people feel like we're, we're, we're moving towards success. Um, and, and to me, that's, you know, that's, that's problematic. Um, and I think many times we would just sit back and kind of relax and um, try to gain a, a better appreciation of the environment and not just move towards action. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 yeah, I'm asking these questions because you are a professor of the National Defense University, so I'll wax <laughs> philosophic with you. But it, it's not just a militarization of foreign policy, it's really focused more on the tactical, the strategic, even mm -hmm. at the foreign policy perspective, right? The strategic thinking about foreign policy is thinking long term diplomatic, right? Or the George Kennans of the world going yeah. back and saying, all right, here's what the next 40 years are going to look like versus a militarization of foreign policy was all about the tactical. Who can we kill tomorrow? Yeah. You know, who can we go in and what territory can we take or what, how can we pacify a certain area? And it's not necessarily thinking about 20, 30, 40 years from now. I think that this might not be a symptom of the militarization of foreign policy. It might be a symptom of the tactification or I'm making up a word if it doesn't exist a foreign policy versus long-term thinking. Yeah. It's, it becomes more transactional, right? Yeah. We're, we're focused more on the individual transaction, not broadly how it kind of fits together. And, you know, as you mentioned, I teach at NDU. And one of the things we always try to talk to our students is, you know, appreciating the role in, in, of all the different organizations within, you know, we use DIME, you know, diplomatic information, military, economic and the different organizations that they represent and, and, you know, not just action, but understand the environment. Um, because I, you know, I think although we've, we've come a long way in, in DOD, um, in appreciating our partners throughout the interagency. Um, I think we still look in, and I mentioned this a little bit in the book, we still look at a lot of them as a supporting effort. Yeah. So our supported effort. And so it's, you know, we need a little bit of that diplomacy or we need a little bit of that economic and not from a standpoint that, you know, let us understand the environment, um, and realize that there's not one dominant, uh, uh, agency or department, um, and that we all have roles to play. Well, it's interesting that the combatant commanders, if you put them on, kind of like a, a line chart with the geographical specialist from CIA who essentially would be the same ballpark as a combatant mm -hmm. commander or the geographical specialist from State Department, they have far less power 
within their organizations. So the Middle East guy at state has way less power than the CENTCOM commander relatively to their organizations. And the geograph, you know, whoever does, you know, South Asia or Southwest Asia for CIA has way less power than, again, as a four-star CENTCOM commander. And just kind of the – and so if they're working together, there's a clear hierarchy even if one is not delineated by law. No, and no, I agree. And, you know, I always point to people – I remember when AFRICOM was, was stood up um, a few years back, I guess, what, 07, 08. I can't remember the exact time frame. Uh, but if you remember, it was very unique because they said that the, the – um, Deputy was going to be an ambassador and, you know, applauding our interagency approach. But it was the deputy. Right. <laughs> you know, the, it was, the combatant commander was still in charge. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, it's an issue. And in, in, in the book, I argue a lot of this has to do with Goldwater and Nichols. Mm-hmm. And I think Goldwater and Nichols, and as I mentioned before, there's the, 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 the cost and the benefits. I think the benefit – um, Goldwire and Nichols, we organize, we being the DOD, DOD organized much better as an entity. Um, it empowered the combatant commanders to kind of focus on, on their regions. Um, and we, I mean, we just, but I think that the cost with that organization, it also helped DOD gain more influence over others. Well, it's the thing. Goldwire and Nichols was designed to reorganize the DOD, but the unintended consequence was that it reorganized all foreign policy really under the auspices of the Department of Defense. Oh, it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I agree with you. Um, and, and I think that's why we're this, the empowerment that it gave DOD, I think what we see now is, is um, you know, um, uh, because of that, because of that empowerment. So, so the book is extraordinarily good. Uh, when it comes to really getting wonky. And if you want to get wonky, this is the book <laughs> to get wonky. And, and, and those out there, don't let that scare you. It's it's certainly readable. Um, it's something that uh, most of us don't think a whole lot about is kind of these high-level relationships between DOD and CIA and these other agencies and how it developed into what it is today. The book is called Subordinating Intelligence, the DOD-CIA Post-Cold War Relationship. The author is David Oakley. David, thank you so much again for joining us here on SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. Hey, Vince, thank you for this great opportunity. Hey, listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.